Paul is going to lay out an introduction, a foundation for what he's going to be teaching, especially in these next uh, few verses that we're going to read this morning. And, and in this introduction, he says a couple of things. He says, keep seeking, keep seeking, that's a continual, keep seeking and set your mind on the things above, not the things of the earth. Now, he could have said it a different way. He could have said, keep seeking and set your mind on the things of the spirit rather than the things of the flesh. Or he might have said, keep seeking and set your mind on the things that are eternal rather than the things that are temporal. And I love when Paul teaches because he always gives us reasons to follow the instructions that he is giving to us. And, and he does that here. One, he says, we've been raised up with him. We've been raised up with him. What's that referring to? Well, that's our salvation. You know, when we're baptized, uh, after we re receive Christ, we go into the water and we often say in the baptism, be buried with Christ and rise in newness of life. That's what it represents. So Paul's speaking of being raised up. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says this. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So we've been raised up with him. You might also put it in your notes, Romans 8, 11, and 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Romans 8, 11, and 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Read those when you get home today. Secondly, he says, we have died. Now, what's he speaking of there? He's speaking of our fleshly nature. We have died. Romans 6, 11 says this, even so, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he's reminding us that our flesh nature, even though we still have it, we are to consider it dead. Then he says two more things here. I want to combine these. He says, our lives are hidden with Christ in verse 3. Our lives are hidden with Christ. And then he says, we will be revealed in glory, in verse 4. What's that all about? Let me read to you uh, 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2 says this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So for this time being, I don't know if you realize that, but you're your life is hidden with Christ, and there's two parts to that. One is it's hidden in protection. Jesus said, I have not lost any of those that you have given to me, and that includes us. He will not lose any of us. So we're hidden with him in that way, but our true selves, our true nature is somewhat hidden right now. It's not completely revealed, but it will be in the future. We will be revealed, our true self, in glory when we're face-to-face -face with Jesus. Then in verse 5 he says, therefore, meaning because all these things I've said are true, therefore it should lead us to embrace the following instructions I'm going to give to you. These instructions that Paul is giving. He's saying because these things are true, then follow these instructions. And he starts off by saying consider the members of your earthly body as dead. He said we've died in Christ. Consider, consider the members of your earthly body 
as dead. And then he gives us a list. He's going to go through. Now, in these lists here, I'm going to not uh, spend a lot of time on each one. We could. That would be the whole message. Um, because there's so much richness and depth in each one, uh, you know, to explain it all. But I'm going to give you a good, solid definition that you could write down, take home, and go, okay, I know what this means. And that's what I want to do here. So we're going to go through the list of things here that we want to consider the members of our earthly body as dead to. One is immorality. That word, you've probably heard it many times before. The word in Greek is pornea. Pornea. And obviously, yes, that's where we get the word pornography from. Pornea. It's fornication. It includes any sexual activity outside of marriage. Very plain, very simple. Write it down. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. And that, of course, includes the use of pornography. And we know that that's a huge problem today. But Paul says, consider the members of our earthly body dead to pornea. And then he says impurity. Impurity. That, that's a tough one. What does that really mean? Well, if you took it literally, it means uncleanness. Well, what does that mean? What's unclean? Well, the Greek scholars, if you study, and I, again, I, each time I do a word like this, I'll use four or five of the top Greek scholars to try and come to a consensus of what it really means. And so the best definition I think you could give is it's morally unclean. As all these other ones are referring to morals and, and sexuality, morally unclean or given over to sensuality, someone who has just given their whole life over to sensuality. Can you think of someone in the Bible who did that for a period of time? Come on. Remember Solomon. He just gave himself over to sensuality. He tried everything there was, and what did he say about it? He said, It's all vanity. It's all vanity. Passion. Now, that's not the kind of passion we talk about, about having passion in worship. Again, these particular ones are really talking about sexual sin. So we're talking about here a passion or lust. And uh, one of the Greek scholars put it this way. It's lust that leads to suffering. And I think that's a great definition. Lust that leads to suffering. Uh, and, and if you continue on in lust, it will lead to your suffering. Guaranteed. Then he says, evil desire, which means a strong or great desire towards evil, doing evil, thinking evil, conversations that are evil. That includes all of those things, evil desire. Now, you may have looked at these and gone, yeah, I'm good here, no problem. But the next two ones are going to get you. Because it says, and greed. What's greed? Greed is to want more and more. And he says greed which amounts to idolatry. Idolatry, if you're not really sure what that means, it really is, it, you know, began as image worship as it was described in the Old Testament. But it really means just putting anything else in God's place. Anything that's taking God's place is idolatry. And he is saying that greed amounts to idolatry. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know, when you want more and more and more, do you know what you're saying to God? Have you ever thought about it? When you always want more, you're never satisfied with what you have. You're saying to God, you're not enough for me. God, you're not enough for me. Paul says to be content in the circumstances we're in. It doesn't mean you don't ever want anything, but you guys get the picture. When you're always wanting more and more, 
it's the same as idolatry. So as Pastor Mel used to say, and I didn't hear any amens here, so I hope you're all saying ouch. Because you either say amen or you say ouch, right? Now look at what Paul has to say about these things in verses 6 and 7. He says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So Paul's pointing out here that before we received salvation, before we came to the Lord, these things were part of our daily life. And again, you may look at it and say, well, I'm not, I wasn't doing those things, but I think you'll find some of those things were part of your daily life. And we don't want to forget that those who have not yet received Christ as their Lord and Savior, these are parts of their daily life. If they haven't received the redemptive work of Christ on the cross yet and they continue in their disobedience, Paul says very clearly here that you will face the wrath of God. We don't like to talk about that in today's modern church, but that's what the Bible says. Now there's more here. We're not done yet, but don't worry. It's going to get better, okay? These next group here, by the way, as we look at them, you'll see that they're, it's concerning relationships. These are things that are concerning relationships. And Paul says this, but now you also put them all aside, and he starts with anger. Anger. Oh, I heard a little groan there. Yes, I groan in my heart every time I read this particular one. It's orge in Greek here, and it's, it's an impulse to wrath. Um, Zotahates, which is one of the great Greek scholars, says it refers to a state of mind. It's not just, you know, you get angry once in a while. We, we're going to do that. But it's this constant state of mind that you may have. You're always angry. Do you know people like that? Were you, were, were you someone like that? You know, I had to look back at my own life and realize there was a point in time in my life where I was like that. My frame of mind was angry most of the time. Um, if some of you have been in with me, I've shared some of the stories. I won't share them today. Um, but I had an angry state of mind. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Easily angered, as it says in 1 Corinthians. The next one is wrath. And wrath and anger are pretty close. In this particular case, it's thumos in Greek. And it means to move impetuously, a violent, or a violent motion or a violent passion of the mind. That's what wrath is. So anger and wrath. And again, think of these in terms of your relationships with other people. The next one is malice. Um, and the best definition I think I came up with from the Greek there was wickedness as an evil habit of the mind. In other words, when you're, when you're thinking about situations or relationships, you have this Wickedness is the habit of your mind. It's always there. That's what malice means. Then there's slander. And it's, it's interesting here because the word in Greek is blasphemous. So we think of, well, blasphemy is always against God or, you know, the verse in Scripture says that blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Blasphemous, But in this case, it's talking about our relationship with other people. Being blasphemous against them. Really what it boils down to is saying evil things about other people that are not true. Or leading to people to believe things about other people that are not accurate. And we're slandering them. Remember, Paul is saying we need to put all of these aside. And abusive speech... Uh, Abusive speech 
can be a couple of different things. Um, it's described in a couple of the um, texts that I read as vile conversation or shameful words. And he says, abusive speech, keep it out of your mouth. Keep it from your mouth. Vile conversation, shameful words. And then, verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Now, it's more than just do not lie, but it's do not lie to one another. Remember, he's speaking to us in the church and our relationships together, right? So he's saying don't lie to one another, but you know what? There's even more to it. Um, the word here in this case means not only in, in terms of speaking to another, but it also means don't cheat one another, don't fraud one, defraud one another, and don't falsify things. Whoa. It includes all of those things. Do not lie to one another. And then Paul again gives us the motivation. Why is that? Because you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. When you came to Christ, you chose to lay aside your old self with all of its evil practices. And I think that it's important for us to look at these things individually, and again, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on every one because you can have all the time you want and look at it and ask the Lord, are any of these things still part of my life? Have I laid them aside or not? But one thing we don't want to do is to look at them and as we often do, dance around them or sugarcoat them, right? We kind of go, well, I, you know, yeah, I don't really lie. Well, maybe, you know, I kind of, Squeeze the truth here and there a little bit. Um, whatever it may be. But we need to look at these seriously and we need to not sugarcoat them. Paul says they are evil practices. And I'll be honest with you, I'm really concerned about some things going on in the church today. Some acceptance of some of the behaviors that we've actually brought into um, discussion today. I hear statements from, from some of the pulpits across America today that, you know, our Christian life, it's not about the do's and don'ts. It's only about loving God and sharing Christ. Well, look, I, I would agree that it's about loving God and sharing Christ. And I would be the first one to admit that I think we could all do a better job of that. We could love God more and we could certainly share Christ more in our lives. But I'm sorry, that's not what our calling is all about. All through the New Testament, we are called to holy living. And this is just one place in the scripture where we're called to be set apart to a holy life. To live a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ Jesus. And this is one time where Paul is doing that. And he says that when we chose Christ, we chose to lay aside the things of the flesh with all our selfish desires. And that we are choosing then to put on a new nature that we've been given by him. But it's a daily choice we have to make. Every single day we get up, we have to make the choice what we're going to put on and what we're going to put off. Now, I love the fact that Paul doesn't just leave us with the don'ts or the negative, right? He, he helps us to be proactive because he's going to tell us, all right, let's put these things off, but let's put some things on as well. So let's move on to verse 10. He says in verse 10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Just do a selah there. Pause for just one second. We've put these things up, but we put on the new self, and this new self is being renewed to a true knowledge 
according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, I find this really interesting. That the first thing that Paul talks about when he says putting on the new self is he speaks about prejudice and racism in the early church. And I find that very interesting. And by the way, this, this section of scripture was chosen well before last weekend when we saw some events that I think we all are struggling with trying to make sense of what is happening, what is going on in our country today. But Paul is speaking to us here and he's saying that one of the things that happens when we put on the new self is that we let go of all distinction of race and ethnicity and culture and all of those things. In the early church, they struggled with this. That's why he wrote it to the church in Colossae. They were struggling with figuring out how do we put all these people together and be one in Christ because there were different backgrounds. There were different relationships. There were different ways that people had done things in the past. And Paul is speaking very specifically and saying, you need to put this aside because it's an evil practice. And look, we can always point the finger at other people and say, well, that's not me, but I think that it's important for us in every area that we study something that we take the log out of our own eye before trying to remove the speck from someone else's eye. That's what Jesus told us to do. And so he says, lay aside this evil, this evil practice. And we need to lay that aside. Then verse 12, he says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Okay, so let's stop here for a minute. Those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. So I'm going to ask you a question. You know how I love to ask you questions. Are you chosen of God? And, and some of you are going, I think so. And others of you are going, well, how do I know that I was chosen of God? Well, there's a simple answer to it. If you have repented, turned from your sin, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and his forgiveness and his redemption, then the answer is yes. You have been chosen. Yeah, give me a woo. Okay? You've been chosen. Now, look, I know the debate. It's 2,000 years old, and you and I are not going to solve it. And it might be fun to debate back and forth between free will, our free will, and the sovereignty of God. You know, sometimes those are fun debates. Sometimes those get to be angry debates. But look, if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are chosen. You have been chosen. And the key that Paul is bringing here is not, he doesn't want to debate that. What he wants to tell you is if you've been chosen and if you've received Christ, you have. He says you are holy, which means you are now set apart for God's purposes, and you are beloved. So instead of just spending too much time on the debate, can't we rejoice in the fact that we are chosen and that we are holy, we have been set apart for God's purposes, and that we're loved Agapeo is the word in Greek. We are loved by God. I'd rather just rejoice in that. I would rather rejoice in that. So Paul says then put these things on. And he's going to give us a new list. 
Uh, we had a list of things to put off. Now he's going to give us the list of things to put on. But before we go there, I want to ask you another question. What does this mean to put something on? Well, I don't know. I'm not even sure what this means. Put something off or put something on. What, is it, what does it really mean to do that? And we've heard this before because we've talked about putting on uh, the spiritual armor, right? I think this is a little different here. The Greek word here, I, I love this. The Greek word is in duo. And it literally means to sink into a garment. To sink into a garment. Now think about that. Do you have any garments that you can relate this to? You can go, I just sink right into that garment when I, when I put it on. And I think for a lot of us guys, um, it's probably the, the well broken in, the well worn pair of jeans. And, and when you get those and you put them on, you just sink right into them and they just become a part of you. And, and, and when they're on, you go, this is me. Oh, man, this, this is me. This is who I am. Well, it's not jeans for me. For me, it's several pairs of shorts that I have. You know, I, I coached and taught physical education for 37 years. And so I sank into my clothes every day because I got to wear shorts. It was the hardest thing about coming to work at Living Truth. I couldn't wear shorts every day anymore. <laughs> Pastor Michael won't let me. <laughs> it isn't that I haven't tried. <laughs> and you know, when I get home, and I'll just tell you, I look forward to the end of, of the day here, even today, because I get home and I grab that pair of shorts and, and I put them on and I just sink into them and I go, ah. I'm me again. This is who I am. And with you ladies, it's, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what you sink into. I'm not even going to attempt there. But I know that you all have something that you sink into and, and you feel that way. Well, Paul is showing us things here that we should put on. And, and when we do, when we operate in those things, of the spirit, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. When we sink into those things, Paul's saying we should get that same, ah, oh, that's me. That's who I am. I often say when I'm teaching on the spiritual gifts that, you know, when you're operating in the gifts that God has given to you, you don't feel obligated. You go, ah, oh, this is fun. This is good. This is me. This is who I am. So Paul's going to give us this list of things. And in verse 12, he says, first of all, put on a heart of compassion. Put on a heart of compassion. Um, several ways this is described in the Greek. One is having pity or mercy on people, especially for one who is suffering. And I think you can relate to that. Put on a heart of compassion. Now, for some, many of us, that doesn't come very naturally. But in the truth of the matter is none of these do. So don't worry right now when you look at that and go, well, that's not me. We'll get there. Put on a heart of compassion. Then he says kindness. Same word that's <clears throat> root word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13. I love this definition of it. Kindness. It is the grace which pervades the whole nature, mellowing all which would have been harsh and austere. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? The grace that pervades your whole nature, mellowing 
all that would have been harsh and austere. So when we have kindness, <clears throat> those places in our life and in our heart that might have been pretty austere kind of mellow out. That's, that's what kindness is. Then humility. And Strong says humility, it describes it as a lowliness of mind. But I think the best way to think of humility is this. Philippians 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3 says this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, humility isn't this false thing where I walk around, I've said this before, you walk around like Eeyore going, you know, and I see people do that, and they, they think that's humble. You know, they don't look people in the eye. They hang their head, and I'm just being humble. No, no, no. It's, it's not doing things from our own desires, from selfishness, empty conceit, but regarding as others as more important than ourselves and understanding our place in terms of, of God. We're not God. He is. It, it's really that simple. Then gentleness. Gentleness is described in the Greek as a mildness of disposition. A mildness of disposition. Or one who has consideration. And then patience. Now it's the same, again, the same word as 1 Corinthians 13. And I speak a lot on 1 Corinthians 13, especially in marriage counseling. We go through the whole thing. And I've had several conversations with, with people about 1 Corinthians 13. And it starts off with, Love is patient. The very first thing it says, love is patient. So it kind of gets you right off the bat. And patience is a good word, but I think King James has it best here. Because it doesn't use the word patience. Do you know what it uses? Any King Jamesers out there? Or New King James? Long-suffering. Long-suffering. You see, patience involves suffering. Does it not? You know, when you have to wait for something, aren't you suffering? I mean, you go to Taco Bell, you only have to suffer for about a minute and a half, right? But you go to Carl's Jr. and you're really suffering because it takes three or four minutes. So it always involves suffering. It's hard to wait. But Paul says, put on patience, long-suffering. Then in verse 13, he says this. Beyond putting these things on, he says, bearing with one another. This word bearing with is endure. means to endure and showing tolerance. Not showing tolerance for sin, by the way. It means showing tolerance for differences in people. Differences in personality traits. That's what bearing with one another means. It means that we... Tolerate each other's differences. Look, we are not all the same. We don't have the same personalities. But we need to bear with other people's personalities who may rub us the wrong way. Now, I know that none of you have to deal with that here in this, this little building here because we are all just perfectly made for one another, right? Wrong. There's people that are going to rub you the wrong way. And Paul says that we're to bear with one another. And he says this, not only bearing with one another, but forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So again, in relationships, we bear with one another, we forgive one another. 
Whoever has a complaint against us, just as the Lord forgave us. Now, I want to say this to you because in counseling, this comes up a lot. You know, relationships are destroyed by people who will not forgive the other person. Every relationship you will have will eventually disintegrate. I don't care how good it was. If you're not willing to forgive the person in the relationship, whichever kind of relationship it is. I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about all of our relationships. If you're not willing to forgive or the other person is not willing to forgive, that relationship at one point will go downhill. Why? Because without fail, we will all hurt one another at some point in time. Not intentionally, or maybe intentionally, I hope not, but we'll all do that. And Paul is so practical here. He says we must forgive each other just as the Lord forgave us so that those relationships can remain strong. And then he says in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on, sink into love which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is the perfect bond of unity. Now the, the ESV says above all these things. I like that better. Beyond doesn't mean the same to me. Above means higher, right? It means ahead of everything else. He says put on love. And that word love here is the famous word agape. You're probably tired of hearing me use this word. But I use this word all the time to remind us of something, and that is it's different than what we think of when we think of love. So if you look at the Bible, it's very consistent. Uh, in many verses, you're going to see where love supersedes every other principle, and I'm going to give you a few here. Matthew 22:37. You might just want to write it down for your notes. Matthew 22:37, And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, agape, same word. You shall agape the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And verse 38, this is the great and foremost, first above all others, commandment. And in verse 39, he says the second is like it. You shall agape your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus taught... That agape was above everything else, just like Paul is teaching us. And he also said that agape, agape love, is how people would re recognize his disciples. You're all familiar with this. John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another, even as I have agaped you, that you also agape one another. And 35 says, By all this, Men will know that you're my disciples if you have agape one for another. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 told us that no matter what we did, whether we exercised well our spiritual gifts, whether we gave everything we have to feed the poor. He wasn't saying just a little. He was saying everything you have to feed the poor. And if you even die for your faith, if you were martyred for your faith in Christ, he says, it profits you nothing if the motivation isn't agape. I don't know about you, but every time we go through that with my premaritals, it, it gets me. 
even if I died for my faith, if I did it out of something other than agape love, it profits me nothing. Now again, I use the word so often because I want you to get it into your mind that this is not a worldly kind of love that we're talking about here. We're not talking about the kind of love that you hear um, you know, on the radio in a nice love song to another person. Um, when, you, when you hear a nice poem that talks about how much I love you. We're talking about a supernatural kind of love. It's the love that only the Holy Spirit can give to us. In our own flesh, we are incapable of exhibiting agape love. Why? Because it's completely selfless. Agape love is completely selfless. We don't expect anything in return for this. Now, I know that some of you are really loving, kind people to, to everybody. Uh, and maybe in your flesh, you can even do a pretty good job. But can any one of us say that I am completely selfish in my love for all the relationships I have? Can any of us say that? If you can, i got to find another church for you. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> we can't handle you. You're too good. We're not completely selfless. It's a love that God can give us. And that, if you want to know what it looks like, just look at 1 Corinthians 13. It tells us exactly what it looks like. But the real beauty of all this is when you're in Christ, as we said before, if you've been chosen, set apart for God's purposes, the beauty is that we have a realization that God gives us this very supernatural ability to agape people. He gives us the ability to do it. I want you all to turn with me now to 2 Peter yeah, we're doing here. Second Peter uh, 1. Second Peter 1. He says in verse 2 of Second Peter 1, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? He explains. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now this word knowledge here means thorough knowledge in the Greek. It's a thorough knowledge. And, and so there's the academic part of that knowledge but there's also the experiential part of that knowledge. That's what this word is telling us. The true knowledge of him means that we understand in our mind, but that we also understand through experience who God is in our relationship with Jesus. And, and I'll say this too. One of my other concerns in, in the church today, and you know, I do a lot of research on what's going on in other churches in America today um, because I think it's important for us to, to know. And one of the other big concerns I have in the church today, and look, there's been concerns forever. This is why Paul had to write all these letters to the churches, right? He had lots of concerns about things that were going on in the early church. But one of the things I'm concerned about in the church today is I see two movements, um, pretty strong movements happening in the church today. One of those groups is this. It's that group that says, look, 
All you need is the Word of God, the Bible. That, that's what you need. Everything is on the Bible. And, and they seem to think that there's no valid experiences where you learn something about God through your experience with Him in a personal way. And they're very quick when anybody shares an experience that they've had with God to just kind of poo-poo that. And, and, and you know, um, it, it, whether it measures up to the Word of God or not, they just really, really shy away from the experiential part of our relationship with the Lord. I've even heard pastors, and this is more than once, by the way, I've heard pastors misquote the verse that we just read. And instead of saying His divine power has granted to us everything. They'll just, without looking at it, when they're just speaking, they'll go, his word, his word has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, I'm not going to say that that's not somewhat accurate. It is somewhat accurate. His word does give us what we need. But it's his power that's granted to us everything we need. That's what the verse says. And we need to see that. I think in those churches, you'll see a very noticeable de-emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a current believer. They're great about teaching you what happened in the book of Acts, you know, and how the Holy Spirit worked. But, you know, today, no, 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 it doesn't work that way today. And so they invalidate people's experiences where the Holy Spirit has led them or spoke to them on, on a particular area. That's, that's one group. But there's another group. And this other group, seems to be willing to throw out most doctrine and rely almost completely on the experiences that they believe are, they're having with the Holy Spirit. They don't always compare it with the word, what the Word says. And sometimes they'll say this experience is valid even though Scripture strictly forbids the practice they may be doing. And so everything in their life that has to do with their relationship with God has to do with their experiential time with him. And there, there's not an emphasis on the whole counsel of God. But I tell you, what book in the Bible do they love? Come on. The book of Acts. They spend lots and lots of time in the book of Acts because they want to have experiences like what happened in the book of Acts. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to have experiences like they have in the book of Acts. I would love to be able to walk up to anybody that ever came in here in a wheelchair or anything else and say, in the name of Jesus, be healed and have it happen. Be awesome. I love it. But that's not the gift God's given me. And so I can't do that. I think it's important for us to know that both of these movements have it incorrect. And we need to know what's correct. We need to know what makes us one body. Verse 15 of Colossians 3 says this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. And for us to be one body, we have to have the Word and the Spirit working in our lives. We cannot have one without the other. We must have the word. We have to rely on the scriptures to tell us what is right, what we're supposed to do, just like we're getting this morning. And we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the power to do what we're told to do. You cannot have one without the other. I believe the most miserable life in the world is people who know the word, but they're trying to live out the word in the power of their own flesh. 
You know why I know that? Because that was me. Has that been any of you? That was me in my early Christian life. I would read this stuff in the Bible and I would go, ah, oh, man, I, I'm terrible. Every time I read something in the Bible, I'm not doing that. Okay, and then I'm going to try really, really hard to do it. Until I came to that place where I began to see that there was power in the Holy Spirit who could give me the ability to do something I couldn't, I couldn't do on my own. Verse 16 says this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. There it is, the word. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, right there, you have the word and the spirit working together. Let me explain to you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, wisdom, teaching. But when it comes to the admonishing, there are psalms. Now, those were written, so you've got those, and hymns. And some people believe that's interchangeable, but I don't know why he'd write it twice. But the idea of spiritual songs was the Holy Spirit putting on people's hearts new songs. That's why I get very upset at people who get critical of contemporary Christian worship and say, oh, you know, it doesn't compare to the hymns. Baloney, it doesn't compare to the hymns. I see people who God's gifted and led by the Holy Spirit to write words, and this morning was a great example of some of those songs. His name is higher than the rising sun. I sing those words written by somebody who God, the Holy Spirit, led to write. So it's the word and the spirit working together. And then he says in verse 17, finally, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. So let me see if I can illustrate how this works because I've had people go, I just don't quite get how this works together. Look, when we gain knowledge about something, it often pushes us to action. Let me give an example. So if you go to the doctor and you find out you have some serious health issue, um, then you sit with the doctor and you determine a course of action to deal with that health issue, right? That's pretty common. We do that. But before we knew that we had a problem, there was no course of action to take, right? We didn't know we had the problem. So we weren't doing anything specific to resolve the problem. We didn't know that we had it. But now we know, so we come up with a plan on how we're going to deal with this particular health issue. Now, we have, we have a plan, and because we know something's wrong, and that plan is going to help us to right what's wrong, so we have the motivation, right? We have a plan, and we have the motivation. There's the word. The plan is given to us. Paul right here gives us the motivation, but let me ask you a question again. Even when you have that plan of how to fix your health and you have the motivation to do it because you want to live longer and be with your family and everything, do we always follow the plan? No, we don't. Why not? Well, sometimes we just don't have the ability in ourselves to do it. Now, for things in the flesh, you might have the strength to follow through with whatever plan you come up with. And if it's a thing in the flesh, physical, you know, we can, we can do that in our own power. I, I, I don't like when people say, oh, no, you can't do anything without the power of God. Yes, you can. You can do all kinds of things in the flesh without the power of God. But when it comes to spiritual things, you can do nothing apart from Christ. So 
you have to have the Spirit. The Spirit gives you the power to follow through with the plan that you have chosen to do. So I hope that helps you to understand how the two can work together. And that Holy Spirit will give us the ability to put off the things of the flesh nature. You say, Kai, I don't know if I can do that. No, you can't. But the Spirit can help you put those things off. And the Spirit can help you to put on all of those things that were listed there for you. Now remember that the whole teaching began with those first four verses. And what did it tell us to do? It says that we're to set our minds on the things above, not on the things below. So the question is, are we willing to do that? Are you willing this morning, as you looked at some of these things and go, I need to put some of these off because I can see them and I certainly see these ones I can put on. Are you willing this morning to start by saying, I'm going to quit putting my mind on the things of this world and I'm going to start focusing on the things of eternity, the things that will last, rather than just continuing living life to fulfill the, the fleshly needs that we have. Now look, I am not saying that you don't have to take care of business here. What I am saying is that when you set your mind on the things above, it gives you a much better perspective on what's important here on this earth and what's not important. When our minds are down here, we can just spend all of our time on things that aren't important. But when we get an eternal perspective, then maybe we can see what's bigger or more important. I have a little story to read for you. A new member of British Parliament took his eight-year-old daughter on a brief tour of his beloved London. They came to Westminster Abbey and the awesomeness of it struck that little girl. She stood looking way up at those columns and studying the beauty and grandeur of the Gothic church building. Her father was intrigued at her concentration. He looked down and said, sweetheart, what are you thinking about? She said, daddy, I was thinking how big you seem at home and how small you look in here. <laughs> you see, she gained some perspective, didn't she? And, and we can do that. When we set our minds on the things above, we can see how small some of our issues are here down on earth. When we think of the things that have eternal value as opposed to temporal value, we get a better perspective. So I'm asking you this morning, are you willing to make a commitment this morning to say, I haven't always been setting my mind on the things above. In fact, I've been, my mind's pretty much been down here below on a consistent basis day by day. Remember it said to keep seeking. It's a continual thing. Day by day, are you willing to get up each morning, spend some time with the Lord and say, Lord, today, help me to set my mind on the things of your spirit, rather the things of the flesh. And when you do, watch God help you to sink into those things and to put off the things of the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. But as we learned this morning, if we only read the word and we're not doers of it, um, it's worthless to us, Lord. 
And we cannot be doers of this word and these instructions you gave us this morning without the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray as each one leaves here that they'll be reminded each morning to ask you for the power of the Spirit to work in their life, to put off the things of the flesh and to put on the things of the Spirit. To set our mind on things that are eternal in value rather than all the things that are just temporal. And Lord, in doing so, we'll live a life that's pleasing and glorifying to you. And Lord, the things that need to get done here on this earth that you've given us to do, when we have that perspective, Lord, we'll do them better. We thank you, God, that you have spoken in your word and told us this morning that when we come to you, it's proof that we have been chosen, that we're set apart for your purposes, and that we are loved, agape loved by you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that as we were speaking of this, they're saying, well, I, I'm not chosen then because I've never done that. I've never determined to turn from my way to doing things God's way. I've never determined to receive Jesus as, as my Savior and as my Lord and desired to follow him. But if that's you this morning, I pray that even right now, as we're praying, that you would just take this time to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And it's just something like this. Lord, I, I see these things of the flesh, the, the evil things that are in my life, and, and I need to turn from those things, Lord. I need to repent. I need to change. And I'm asking you, God, right now to come into my life. Lord, I want to give my life over to you so that I can be empowered by your Holy Spirit to live the life I was just reading about. So I accept you, Lord, as my Lord and Savior. I receive you into my life. And I desire, Lord, to follow you and be your disciple for the rest of my life. And if you've spoken those words from your heart this morning, then guess what? You're chosen. And Lord, for each one that has done that, I pray that you will seal them by the power of your spirit, which you promised you would do in the word. And Lord, let them know that you're right there let them have more than just ac academic knowledge, but let them experience you as well, Lord, this morning. And we thank you for, for that. And we thank you, Lord, for how you have loved each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.